Real estate syndication is a way to get into much bigger properties, much bigger deals, a way to diversify across real estate assets in a unique way. Risk comes from not knowing what you're doing, from being inexperienced with the tools you have available. What business model can I discover for real estate that I can continually do this, but the trajectory will be stronger, the growth will be greater. And so that's a, a new business model I adopted. Hey, Robbie, welcome to the Better Wolf Show. Thank you, Caleb. It's great to be here this morning. It's uh, I'm I'm excited to talk all things life insurance portfolio, real estate investing, mindset around money. Um, I know that you have an amazing amazing backstory, and one thing that um, I'm realizing is our audience loves hearing examples and case studies, and so I want to do my very best to to share as many cool people as possible with what they're up to. And so um, before we jump into all the cool things that you're doing with your life insurance and how you look at it almost like a fund in itself, can you kind of take us on your backstory and give us like, who is Robbie Butler? And uh, like, how did you how did you get to to be where you're at today? Sure thing. So I began my career in the fundraising industry. Fundraising gets a bad rap for really all the reasons that you might think you're looking for people's money, you're out there hunting, you know, who's got the biggest wallet and who can basically fork it over when you ask them to. And yet when you boil these things down, fundraising, like all things in the financial industry that are done well, is an unselfish business. In my case, I was in nonprofit philanthropy and loved connecting donors with the things that they appreciated. So that's where my career began was in this very deep, individual connection with other people, these donors, and looking for the ways that they could use their money effectively. So that brought my my overall viewpoint on finance from an unselfish background. As I went through the early stage of my career, I also started to learn about real estate. And so we'll get into those examples in a second, because that's where my existing life insurance policies suddenly took on incredible utility. But Fast forwarding a couple of years of fundraising, my real estate portfolio started to grow and I realized myself as an individual was feeling a little separated. I was running on these two tracks at once and by the grace of God, learned about a way that I could blend my two skill sets as harmoniously as possible and really aligning myself as a person. So I didn't have to feel like I was, you know, evening real estate investor and morning fundraiser, but they could work together. And so that's how we got to here and today. It's awesome, man. And so you're you do real estate syndication, which mm -hmm. um, if you could just explain to to my audience what that is, what you do on a day to day basis, and then and then I want to dive into uh, what you've learned about life insurance because if I understand it, you got a life insurance policy at a pretty young age, and it's been compounding, and you've been able to use it in some pretty incredible ways. So real estate real estate syndication for anyone that doesn't know what that is. Um, sure. How did you get into it and what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Sure. Well, like I said, all these things connect and they all do become a part of a harmonious whole, like with people's investments. You want them to improve your life in a better way. And for some people, they own their life insurance policies. They own real estate themselves. And let's say they have a bond portfolio or some other financial asset. Well, 
real estate syndication is a way to get into much bigger properties, much bigger deals, a way to diversify, diversify across real estate assets in a unique way. So you think of your home. If you have a mortgage on your home, often if that's a pie, it's cut into four quarters and the mortgage is three quarters of the pie and you have a quarter in equity. Simple real estate model. Real estate syndication cuts that pie up into many more slices and can hand it out into many more people. So yeah. literally, if you have, let's say a million dollar property, and this is an example, some a deal I would work on any day now. Yep. Million dollar property, let's say it has debt of $600,000. Well, you could have four investors at $100,000 a piece to take down all of the equity. What I do, I go out and find those investors. I craft the deal. I offer them the opportunity and I listen for if that deal is the right deal for them. If that matches their financial goals, if it is in alignment with who they are and where they want to be in one year, five years, 10 years, etc. So it is an unselfish business and that's how I was so attracted to it. And that's, that's why I love it so much. That's that's awesome. That's awesome, man. One one of the things that I love about real estate syndication is uh, you can utilize depreciation and some tax benefits. You can really utilize leverage in two folds, especially where how you sit. You you get banks, but then you also get investors. And I think for you know LPs, people that are putting up capital and people that are managing it, it's it's a win 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 if done properly. And uh, right. what what are some of the things that you've seen horror stories when it comes to real estate syndication that if you're listening and you're like, hey, I want to look into real estate syndication, what what should people be aware of or be careful about before jumping in? A great question. All relationships begin with trust. And so you should spend as much time as necessary to prove that you trust the syndicator. That's the beginning. Because the syndicator, when done properly, should understand you like a friend. Yeah. They should know not just your 10 sentence version of these are my financial goals and this is what I'm looking for, but they should understand your family. They should understand your your other areas of life that are important to you because people might say, oh, my goal is to hit the highest rate of return possible. You show me a 100% rate of return, I'll give you all my money. That may not be the right thing for them. And the syndicator may have to discern that in the process of growing trust with the person. So horror stories often begin with breaking a few fundamental principles like that one. Yeah. No trust. So there's no foundation for the deal. Not really understanding the deal is another one. Someone goes, I thought this was a cash flow deal. This is an oversimplified example, but I thought this was a cash flow deal. You say, no, we have to delay the cash flow until the building is done being built. Well, that would come from simply rushing someone through the process, forcing them into the deal and saying, your returns are going to be great, but they thought they were going to get, let's say, a check on the first month, but maybe the yep. deal pays quarterly. Maybe the deal pays annually. Yep. There are all these elements that are so necessary to get deep on. I, I think this is for this is true in whatever business that you get into is expectations. Really, really understand how you get your money back. Uh, trust is obviously um, it's 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 so important and it's so hard to measure because it's a lot of yep. it's a gut feeling. But due diligence is a a way. Do you have a due diligence checklist? Are you you running by these opportunities through other people. Like there's a lot of things that you can do to create checks and balances and create a higher due diligence. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you said. And risk is one of those things where it's like, if you look at the definition of risk, it's your chance of loss, okay? 
And I think Todd Langford does this in a really, really good way where I've just like, I kind of like opened my eyes of like, we should want to reduce risk for what we're trying to get into. And if you look at like Warren Buffett and other notable, powerful investors, they're not trying to get a greater rate of return. They're trying to get the same market return and reduce their risk at the same time. And I think that's just another another thing that we should always have that uh, pre-frame when, whenever we look into a deal uh, investing wise is what are the, what are the risks and what are my chances of loss? We'll have to cite the source on this in the show notes, but someone out there says risk comes from not knowing what you're doing from being inexperienced with the tools you have available. And so the great risk to the LP in a syndicated deal is not understanding the market they're entering. And so my solution for anyone who is interested in making a passive investment in a real estate deal, such as a syndication, or perhaps an oil and gas deal, or a Bitcoin deal, mm -hmm. would be find a syndicator and spend a year seeing if you can trust them. Because even if you find a different syndicated deal, you could still go to them yep. and say, explain this to me like I'm five years old. Yep. And then they can help you sift through the elements that are necessary to get this right. All right. So now let's talk about life insurance. And this is this is something that I'm always fascinated by is, is how did you learn about life insurance? How did you get started? And how are you using your life insurance policy today? And you, you can I, I talk about all kinds of um, open ended. Let me read you that. <clears throat> hey, now let's talk about life insurance and how you use use your life insurance as an and asset and how you got started some epiphanies that you've had along the journey and how you're using your policy today. And you can feel free to share any other insights. I tend to uh, ask open ended questions because I am always fascinated how our audience and um, and how my guest utilize certain strategies. And obviously, a lot of people listening to this interview or watching us right now are very familiar with the life insurance strategy. So I was very fortunate that my mom has been in the life insurance industry for three decades or more. And so I did grow up with this insight into what was going on in the life insurance world and why I could make use of these strategies. So she, as a good mother, did not force me into this. She was patient. She let me make my own decisions, but I knew a foundation of a real strong financial portfolio are the types of assets that can run for your whole life. And life insurance is like none other. So examples, I took my first policy out. Oh gosh, I, I don't even know when my first one came, but I made my own choice. I signed my own paperwork without asking for mom or dad's help when I was 18. And then I did another one when I was 22. And those policies began my journey into the entrepreneurial career I have now. So I was fairly aggressive with my cash value early on. I said, I want to commit a lot of my current financial resources to this life insurance policy. We're talking like easily 20% of my annual paycheck going straight to cash value before unscheduled paid up additions as really as much as I could from a very early moment in my professional career. Hmm. This was while I was an employee. And so I was shoving money into this policy. I had no goals. I just knew that that was going to be the foundation. There was a trust element there. I, Fast forward. Yeah, I want to I want to park on that. Because number one, why did you see like, what was the attractive nature of that? You didn't have a reason. But you mm -hmm. talked about one word foundation. And you're like, there's something about I'm going to take earned money. I'm going to put it towards something 
And the unsexy nature of that is if it was in a savings account or an investment, you may have a greater balance. Why did you choose to put it into a life insurance to build that foundation? But in the short term, did you ever have any doubts or did you ever be like, man, this doesn't make sense? Or did you just get it because your mom's a legend in the space? I saw the full picture. That's why I got it. And so someone considering what they should do, your listeners considering what type of policy policy should they take out, they should see how much they see the full picture. Are they able to look out 10 years, 20 years, 50 years into the future and get a sense of who they want to be? So in my case, I was 18 or 20 and I could see the full picture that someday I would want to transition significant assets to my beneficiaries, whether that's charities, children, grandchildren, businesses that are doing something for the world that day. And I could see the more I can connect that long-term vision to today, the better it'll be. And life insurance is the tool. And so really simplifying that, I knew, hey, that, that estate tax bullet will be dodged in the future. So I will, at least from my current understanding, I'll commit to that long-term vision, even if I don't see all the roads along the way. And that's what made me comfortable with the commitment I made. So you started at 18. And then you had another policy at 22. Yes. Why did you start another policy? And, and was it because you maxed out your first one and you had more cash flow that you wanted to put to, to work? You should add policies to your, you should add life insurance policies to your financial portfolio when your income rises. So I was 18. I had like $6,000 in income a year. We, I was not the entrepreneur you are. I had no vision. So twenty percent of that. Do you, you was your first policy like a thousand bucks or what? Totally, absolutely. I love that. I love that. Yep, yep. <laughs> I love that. Policy, yeah, it was great. And I and I had no vision, but I knew that there is a long term trajectory here that makes sense. So the few dots I had, I was connecting them. Twenty two or twenty years old, however I was, income went up significantly. And so I said, all right, I'm going to keep on this thread. So in inserting that new policy, I was absorbing a lot of the cash that I might otherwise have wasted on cars, outings, travel. Yep. And I was committing to that financial foundation. And what a foundation it has been. So let's fast forward a couple of years. What did I do with that policy first? Well, it sat there for several years, accruing my premium payments and me not touching it. And one day I was sitting there. And I said, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about interest rates. Well, from learning about interest rates, like a month's worth of learning moved me into mortgages, which moved me into real estate. And I suddenly realized I've got a ton of cash value. I've got a decent income. I've got some opportunity that I am not capitalizing on. Let's go find a house. To simplify the story for the future, bought a house, used my full cash value out of my life insurance policy at that point. But to whet your listener's appetite for more real estate content, that house was creatively financed. And from the check I received from the seller at closing, I refunded my entire life insurance policy and was basically in it for no money down and had the same bullet in the chamber to go and pursue other opportunities. And I look back on that and go, I probably did not understand how foundational, how instrumental, how helpful that was to have one good opportunity come to pass through my for, through my life insurance and through this first real estate transaction. So the life insurance cash value gave you the ability to 
put at least a down payment originally, or did you buy the whole yep. house originally with cash and then creative finance allowed you to, to take your money back and, and like, do you mind unpacking how that deal happened? Of course. So I did big picture on the house. You know, we talk about the pie. I did finance it traditionally with a, let's think about this. I think I used 3% down 97% loan, traditional live in home purchase. Interest rates were good at that time. So I said, let's go for this. The 3% inequity I put into the house was funded entirely with cash value from life insurance. So you could say that the house was fully leveraged. You could say that. One of the loans is a traditional mortgage loan and one of the loans is my is borrowed against my life insurance policy. The creative element was that this house had been on the market for 400 days. And so I went to the seller and said, nice home, be willing to buy it, but why don't you give me a little money back on the back end for purchasing your house? That little bit of money was exactly what I had already taken out of the life insurance, borrowed against the life insurance policy in order to deploy on the house. And so he handed me the check at closing, put it back in my life insurance policy, returned the loan and said, what happens next? Now I'm I'm back where I was, but now I have a house too. Well, and the beautiful thing about that is the first deal is always the hardest. And now your eyes are open to what's possible, which is yep. just amazing, man. Thank you so much for unpacking that. Because again, it's a classic example of when you have capital, when you have access to cash, opportunities will seek you out. And this is an example of that. But you also took it to the next level and, and thought outside the box. A lot of people don't have because they don't ask. And right. um, so so what happened next? I, I love this. So that was the first deal. How old were you when this deal went down? Oh, gosh, I must have been. I know this. I was 24. Four, okay. I believe. So you have two policies at the time. Yep. Not not crazy ton of cash value at this point, but they're no. they're continue every year it's continuing to grow and, and you start you start you have your first deal deal down, which is the hardest. So what what happened next? Sure. Well, now I'm sitting there. I put some roommates in my home to help pay for that. And so suddenly I'm basically back to neutral, but I've added two strong assets, one being a big life insurance policy and one being a home. And I realized man, this life insurance policy can do this again, but I've got to think a little bit more before I go and run with the same strategy. I've got to grow my financial knowledge. And part of that, again, is a discovery of self. Your podcast talks about this all the time. You are improving yourself, which improves the activities you're involved with. It improves the people you're talking to, this you know, better wealth, but better everything. And so I pushed myself a little bit and said, what business model can I discover for real estate that I can continually do this, but the trajectory will be stronger. The growth will be greater. And so that's a, a new business model I adopted to share a little bit specifically about an insight I had after that first home transaction on life insurance. I realized people take out loans all the time for everything. You know, they, God forbid loans on doodads, loans on irresponsible assets, non-collateralized TVs, TVs, couches. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Finance everything. I realized this life insurance loan fundamentally is one of the best types of loans I could possibly get for any type of transaction I need to do. We're talking, where else can you get a loan with an undefined payback period, essentially interest only if you are clever enough about it, where else can you get a loan with such flexibility? So the real estate friends I made all had really strict loan requirements that they would hit. And I go, real estate loans are better than all of these loan requirements. You know, I'm not talking about a five-year 
period. There's no balloon. There's no trial date. This can run for as long as I choose for it. So what happened next? I started to look for multifamily. Multifamily had some of the elements that I felt my next real estate deal would need. Use the same life insurance loan that had been deployed on my home, repaid by the home to go purchase small apartments. I started to purchase more and more small apartments. And again, my gratitude for this is unbounding because I never would have realized the partnerships that would have opened up, the doors would have opened. We made so many mistakes, but it was all collateralized with strong assets. The life insurance was deployed appropriately with enough understanding to understand what necessary KPIs, what essential bullet points needed to be hit to make this all successful. How many tenants did I need in there? What type of cash flow every year would appropriately reinforce my policies and the life insurance and the real estate product itself. And so as we proceeded acquiring more and more small apartments, suddenly now a portfolio has been built and it's all off of that same life insurance policy that paid for the first transaction and then the second transaction and then a portion of the third transaction because the real estate reinforced the life insurance and the life insurance reinforced the whole portfolio. It's awesome, man. Did you, when when you got into these deals, did you have like a desire to pay off your life insurance loan fast or did you like the fact that it was unstructured and, and you were okay with it compounding a little bit while your, your deals were in the mix? Great question. So the thing that is hard to describe is the learning that was going on while this was occurring. I think those of us that are committed to growing ourselves have to realize that you're not going to run a perfect path beginning to end, you're going to need to do some course correcting. And so I had a lot to learn about that exact methodology. I was not strict in how I should apply this. And so that was helpful in some ways, but I meant I didn't have that strategy in place. I had to learn more about how quickly do I want to pay this policy back? And so now my philosophy is what are the opportunities out there for me? And should I measure out the cost of leaving the policy fully deployed or, or, or borrowing against maximum cash value versus the benefits of having cash on hand, repaying the policy loan, having some cash available. How many opportunities do I really think are flying by my desk every day? And so it's a financial equation. I did not have that midway through these first couple of transactions. And so I was basically doing everything I could, it's just awesome. slapping awesome. stuff together. And have you, have you added any more life insurance policies to your portfolio since? I wish those policies have continued to benefit me, but where has my income gone? It has gone to drive new businesses. And so the income is stabilized, but the growth in the other areas is what I'm excited about. And so I do need to add more life insurance policies. But So talk, talk to me about, cause when we, before we recorded, you had a really interesting point that you made is like, you kind of separated your business from your personal portfolio. And you, you talked about your personal portfolio slash your policies as almost like a fund. And, and this is, I think what we both have got from Kim Butler is the concept of like, you build up your emergency reserves and then everything above emergency reserves is opportunity. And you kind of see that, at least I see that as, okay, this is my opportunity fund where I can look for opportunities to grow myself, my business, create more cash flow. Um, how do you, how did you see that? Do you, do you see that the same way? Is there another way that you, that you like, is there another mindset that you have as it relates to that? And there's one, again, highlight how cool it is that you have got started 
um, with this mindset, because what I'll say is it's the life insurance piece didn't make you successful in other things. I just want to be very clear. Like it's very clear that you've invested in yourself. You have the right mindset, like a creative finance deal is just amazing. I'm super happy for you in that, but the life insurance potentially could have got you to start thinking differently and that right. we could we could say like some of that education for sure compounded and it gave you the ability to do that. So it's always it's always hard to say this is exactly how it worked, but it, this is a great example of why we should be teaching our kids, why we should be getting financial literacy, why should we should create for savings. One of the biggest negatives of life insurance is oh you have to pay it each year. That could be one God of the most forbid. amazing things because it's like the richest man of Babylon. Pay yourself first. You're creating a forced savings vehicle every single year. So I know I'm talking about a lot of things, but like it's just all these things come to my mind when you tell tell your story. You mentioned the richest man in Babylon, and the lesson from that book that I think about probably too often is that money runs to responsible parties, and it runs away from irresponsible parties. Think about that for a moment. People will come to mind that cannot seem to keep money near them. Why is that? An irresponsible party. They may not have the tools necessary yet. I hope they listen to your podcast. I hope they find that tool, but it is running away from them because of something in their mentality that keeps them irresponsible about money. What a sad thing. So I know all the times that I have made mistakes and then therefore lost money from it. Well, I wasn't a responsible party in some small manner. And like with the house, that first house I bought, I was, I read every line of that contract. I read, I ran through every single potential outcome of how this deal could work. So I was a responsible party. Meanwhile, the sellers like take the stinking home get rid of this thing, do whatever you want. And so I was the responsible party. He was the irresponsible party and the money did run away from him and ran back to me because I had taken care. So Richest Man in Babylon is such a great book. Your question about all of the details, I've forgotten your question. Help me out here. Yeah, no, I tend to do that in in these podcasts. I, I would just say like, what were some of the epiphanies that you had as it relates to like, how did life insurance and the funding of it and the benefits of life insurance help you with other deals? Absolutely. So I would say all of this has occurred for me because good mentors arrived at the right time, which is something I think listeners can trust that as they seek out this information, the people who can also help them along in their journey upwards, along their financial trajectory, along the trajectory of their life, the mentors will arrive, the right ideas, the right people. So for me, what was the philosophy that helped to reinforce the structure I set up? It was that very simply from one of my mentors, Russell Gray of the Real Estate Guys radio podcast, that a business portfolio, a personal portfolio, and all these other elements of your life should reinforce each other, but they should be able to stand alone. They should be able to, to, have their own foundation, each of them, and they should be mutually beneficial. But if your business leans too much on your, let's say your job's income, and then let's say you lose your job, well, does the job's income and the business income fall off? It probably would. You want these things to be built well enough so they stand alone. So to put that in very simple terms, people buy speculative real estate deals all day long, deals that 
hey, they might cash flow great in five years, but until then I'm underwater and I'm okay because my other income from other sources is providing for that. That's not wise real estate investment. That is speculative. People are okay with that because they think they understand the future, but wise real estate deals, like all wise deals, stand on their own. And the best ones, you would look at a post-it note with the deal terms and you'd go, yeah, let's do this. And you would not need any more info to understand that it's a strong deal. They say the best deal packet is a one pager and you look at it and you go, no brainer, I'm ready, yeah. sign me up. Yeah, I had a, a, when I worked at the bank, the bank president sat me down because I was looking at doing some real estate stuff and I was trying to get the numbers to work. And he said, Caleb, if you ever need to stretch out an amortization table to make the numbers work, don't do it. <laughs> and that was, that stuck with me because I'm like, you know, back in the day, I was like, man, if I if I just I need to make this work. But you you realize the more you live, how much other things that you can't necessarily calculate before a deal, all the other crap that comes into your life, um, the unexpected unknowns. And so it's just like it's it's very much um, wisdom has said more buffer. And for me, I personally have uh, a year's worth of reserves for that same reason is I feel like I show up more powerfully can take greater or maybe more clever business opportunities or risk because I have a reserve. And if you don't have a, an emergency fund, you are, you are more vulnerable and it potentially, you might have to say no to an opportunity because it wouldn't be suitable or, or the right thing for you to do with because of your family or your other obligations. So what are your thoughts as it relates to emergency fund and how much cash value do you just keep like untapped and then what what how do you look at that from an emergency fund ratio to money that's actively uh you can utilize and how do you how do you look at your life insurance portfolio today in the decisions you're making great question so you view the real estate if anyone is viewing the real estate market they would see opportunities are around the corner that are once in a decade Dolph DeRue says the deal of the decade comes around once a week which is a wonderful mindset but I do believe the deal of the decade are about to come around once every three hours for the next several months. And so I'm in a position now where if I can have more cash, more opportunity fund, I will keep it. I will absorb as much as I can from my portfolio, from my business dealings, from opportunities out there in the marketplace. They say cash is king. And so we go, oh, that's always the case. But it is more true now than it has been in the past. So that is a genuine answer. I will keep as much cash on hand right now as I can. Maximum amount. Is there too much? I would genuinely say no. On the emergency side, I'm generally keeping about three months worth. And that is, again, a business decision, though it is involving my personal life. And that's because I do feel as a business owner, I'm very close to the source of cash. When you're in an employee role, you have a very stable source of cash, but you are removed from the ability to grow it on an hourly basis, let's say. So I now know if I truly need to get to cash as quickly as possible, I have the levers at hand. It means I do very specific things for short-term growth that I wouldn't do otherwise. And so I'm keeping three months of cash on hand, but that is a choice. It's a business choice. Right. And those are emergency cash needs, yeah. not alternative. You're, I admire your year. I, that's no, a good it's, position. It, but, it's, but it's also like I would bet you that I have 
more obligations than you that's outside of me from a standpoint sure. of team members and other other things that again it's all there's ebbs and flows and you know i i potentially have more leverage in some areas because of a team but you also have more responsibility in some areas so it's like there's the grass is not always greener but right. it's we have to look at our own situation and there's opportunity costs and everything you could right. have six months but what are you saying no to and vice versa you because you have six months, you might be able to say yes to a more powerful deal than three months. It, it, it's all it's all an opportunity cost simulator, and I think it's uh, it's just fun to talk about, and I just appreciate your openness. And I, I want to touch on one last thing before we wrap this up. You talk about opportunities. There's no greater time. Is that because you're seeing a recession that will come? Interest rates are sky high. Do you see like the creative financing deals being like super abundant because people are going to be losing their job and they might have a locked in cheap mortgage? And so like, why do you say that this is going to be some of the best time? Is that those some of the factors that you see or is there something that I didn't mention that I should be having on my radar? Everything you said is correct. In addition to that, they say the classic example is the bull in any market goes up by the stairs and the bear goes out by the window, meaning bull climbs gradually. You can watch the graph and the bear plummets several stories and goes splat on the ground. And you have to be careful with overgeneralizations. But from a macroeconomic perspective, I believe that the Fed has tried tightening. They've crushed several banks already. We're recording this March 2023 and several banks have had very sad and sorry failures that happens now that continued attempt by the fed to crush the economy to slow down growth will cause the credit markets in my view to break entirely so i believe for one people holding some short-term loans will suddenly have no alternative but to sell they will be they will have to sell so badly it may be sold for 60 cents on the dollar, 40 cents on the dollar. So that's one element because credit markets collapse and people who have to refinance and can get no financing to do so will have to sell. So that's one piece. When the credit markets collapse, the additional economic factors rippling out into the economy, into the world will cause, I think, such a dramatic reversal of the quantitative tightening attempts by the Federal Reserve that the new money printing scheme that will have to be set up to stimulate the economy when there is no credit and when there's no financing will run the dollar into a free fall in real value because they will have to print so fast. So we're talking, what do you like, like in a bowling alley, we got too close to a bumper and people think, oh, we're probably slipping back to the other bumper. Well, this is in fact, we have slammed into one bumper and we will slam into the other bumper. Quantitative easing out the wazoo. So let, let's talk about that because then people are like, well, what's the, the point of even life insurance? Like if the dollar's not worth anything, like what is your, what is your counter to that? Um, because I, I appreciate your perspective and I, I, it'll be very interesting. I, I it'll be very interesting what happens and yep. it's kind of hard to imagine that we're going to print a ton more money on top of what we've already printed during the last couple of years. Um, right. but if you ask me, would you be shocked? No, I wouldn't be shocked, unfortunately. Um, so what is your what is your counter to like, are we just wasting our time with having any money in, in cash? Should we put it in crypto? Should we put it in gold? Like what is what is your uh, what is your whatever you call it, your future look like for your portfolio? 
right? You and I are approaching business similarly. We're still doing what we're doing, even as this prospective occurrence is out in the future. What I didn't mention in my analysis, again, and I'm no financial advisor, so <laughs> financial advice out the window as well. Don't bother. But the perspective I share did not include a time frame. We don't know when this occurs. So responsible parties have to take responsible steps in every environment, in every economy, even if yep. we are using yep. seashells to pay for our food. Yep. Well, and still and all along the way. This is what I always say is value. Value creation is actually the best hedge because gold, great. Bitcoin, great. But that, like whatever currency we have is going to flow to value creation. So if you can be valuable, people will always need shelter. And uh, people will always pay for something if they perceive it being valuable. And yep. so spend your time and, and capital um, continuing to create value. And I think you'll be fine. So anything else yep. you want to add, like anything else that you want to add about real estate investing, life insurance, your personal journey? I was fortunate that I realized a key element of who I am as a person was that I was an unselfish person and I wanted to share what I knew outwardly. That has unlocked business opportunities. It has proven to me why I choose business models. It has directed the choices I make and the things I do. And I would encourage any listener to take that approach. Think very deeply. Do the work to learn about yourself. Yep. And once you have that down, then you've got the best litmus test you could ever ask for, for yep. who you are supposed to be, for what you're supposed to do. I love that. And last question I ask on the podcast is if this was your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the most, couldn't give them anything, podcast, book, you could just have this last conversation. What would you make sure to highlight and say in that last conversation? I would say that I have, if I'm surrounded by the people I love, I'd say I have loved every moment of the adventure I've been on with you. And I look forward to the next one, whatever that is positive outlook going forward. Cool, man. I, I appreciate appreciate those words. How can people connect with you, learn about what you're doing? Appreciate you taking time to be on the show and talk about examples. And I also just want to say, if you're watching or listening to this and you're like, hey, I want to come on the Better Wealth Show and talk about my life insurance experience, I am doubling down uh, on trying to get other perspectives because we have all kinds of stories. You're a perfect example of people using their policies to further their financial life and journey. And I just love it. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, how can people stay in touch with what you're, what you're up to? The best value I provide is my own network of key partners and resources. And I would be so delighted to talk with anyone who's willing. You can listen to me on the Wealth Renegade podcast, my business partner and I running our own show over there. But reach out to me, therentbutler at gmail.com, and let's talk about how we can get goals done, especially in real estate, but really in any way that the market provides and that I can help you. I love it. We will make sure to, to link the podcast and your email down below. Robbie, man, appreciate you. Thank you for, for taking time, and I look forward to future conversations. Thank you, Caleb. Great to see you today.